and welcome to the Living With Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Simone Denny, and I'm here to uncover how we find more joy, greater fulfillment, and deeper purpose in our lives. I will be sharing my own journey, as well as insights from thought leaders and everyday people who are living with purpose and have created a life they truly love. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you're new to this podcast, thank you so much for joining me today. I am loving speaking to these really fascinating and inspiring people who have either found their purpose or are living on purpose. I actually just (laughs) had to re-record this introduction because I live on an island and we have, when there's a fire, there is a really loud siren that goes on across the whole island and just as I was speaking, the siren went off and it's a, a voluntary fire brigade here, so um, it, does, it does go for a while and it's pretty loud. So here we go, take two on introducing um, the lovely Dr. Christy Goodwin, who is someone who has inspired me for quite a few years. Um, I've done a number of her, I've done her workshops, read her book, and she is really a, a leader in the world of digital health and well-being. And it is uh, a huge topic for everybody. And I think we can all agree that it touches, technology touches our lives um, at all stages of our lives, whether it's parenting our children, teenagers, um, our own interaction with technology and how do we interact in a way and manage ourselves in this digital age um, where we do feel so tethered to our devices and so dependent on them. Um, and Christy does just a fantastic job of really deconstructing this and giving us practical tools that we can use to help us on this journey because it is a bit unknown. We don't know the full impact of um, growing up in this digital world, so it does feel like we're we're kind of navigating a bit blindfolded, but Christy gives us these insights into things like Um, how technology is impacting productivity, how it's impacting our sleep, what we can do to kind of tame this need to be on technology all the time. Um, Yeah, the the mental and physical impact of um, being wired into technology all the time. She also gives some really great tips on, you know, how to set boundaries with your own children. So if you haven't heard of Dr. Christie, she's one of Australia's leading digital health and well-being and productivity experts. She's the author of Raising Your Child in the Digital World, a speaker, media commentator and digital, digital well-being researcher. She has three boys and one of them is just five months old. She also has worked as an educator for 14 years. She's an academic and a speaker. And she now speaks, um, after a long career of teaching about how to manage your children in the digital world, she now speaks a lot to corporates on how to manage ourselves in the digital world. She works with companies such as Apple, Westfield, um, 
Optus and a number of others. So she has a very good ability of breaking down research into really understandable bite-sized pieces for people like you and me. Um, she tackles difficult conversations such as pornography and our children's exposure to pornography and what we can how we can manage that, which is just such a kind of heartbreaking topic, but that can feel a bit overwhelming. But there are things that we can do and we do need to be having conversations about this stuff. So without further ado, I just want to welcome Dr. Christie to our show and I really hope you get some some little pearls of wisdom from this podcast. Hello and welcome, Dr. Christy Goodwin. It's so great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. And I know that you've got a little five-month-old sleeping, so this is precious time and I really <laughs> appreciate you being here. So if we hear a little it's a noise. pleasure. <laughs> we might know what a little sound is. So I met you quite a few years ago in Sydney now, and I came to one of your amazing talks. And I think at the time I had a, a three or a four-year-old, and you were teaching on how to manage your child in the digital world at the time. And it was so relevant to me, and I had so many aha moments um, that it's really stuck with me. And a couple of years after that, my husband also went to one of your talks and loved it. And then we bought the book. So we listened to fans of yours. Um, oh, that's lovely to hear. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just such important work that you're doing in the world. And I know that it really started with working with children and how the impact of technology is on them. But it's really evolved into adults as well and how it's impacting us and I think a lot of people out there are feeling this impact and noticing changes in their own dependence on technology. Um, so I, I'm really excited to talk about kind of the both sides, children and adults. And um, I'd just like to know kind of how your journey has unfolded to becoming a, a digital health expert. Well, I'd like to say I had a very clear career trajectory mapped out, but that wasn't the case. Um, I fell into this work through a series of serendipitous kind of events. Um, I was a teacher, an early childhood and a primary school teacher, and then I became an academic looking at the impact of technology on children. Mm. And I started um, speaking about this, and then I experienced what I now call life's greatest equaliser, and I became a parent for the first time. And I had very naively thought um, that having a one-to-one -one ratio was going to be a walk in the park. I was a kindergarten teacher at one stage with 32 children to care for. So I had preconceived notions that motherhood was going to involve Pinterest-worthy cooking and all sorts of other, you know, scrapbooking and all the things that never came to fruition. Um, but I had my first son, and it's not how I date his chronological age, but it's important for this story. I had him, he was born six months after the first iPad came out. So um, I had, at six months of age, so this is 12 months after the iPad had, had made its appearance, I took my son for his six-month developmental check with the pediatrician. We got the all clear, but I was the A-type nervous first-time mum and worried the paediatrician might have missed something. So I took my son back to the local healthcare clinic nurse to repeat the six-month developmental check. 
So I sat down with Joan and she started to ask me, was he having tummy time? Was he babbling? Had he started solids? All the regular questions. And then she leaned in and she asked me what screen time he was having. And I thought, well, maybe Joan knows what I do for work. Maybe she's checking that I walk my talk. And I said, well, nothing. He's six months of age. And I was a little bamboozled. And she leaned forward and she wagged her finger and she did the, in Australia, we call it the skippy sound, the she proceeded to tell me that he would fall behind if he wasn't learning letters, colours and shapes on the iPad. And she also prescribed about 15 minutes of Baby Einstein DVDs every day at the ripe old age of six months. And I actually thought it was a candid camera moment. I thought there are cameras here watching what I say in my response. But I hadn't been caffeinated. It was nine o'clock in the morning, rookie mum mistake. You don't ever make the nine or take the nine o'clock appointment. And I didn't come up with a coherent response. I was absolutely flabbergasted because here we had an allied health professional giving out grossly, you know, factually incorrect information. Um, and so I left that appointment and I got the non-sleeping baby to have a sleep. And he had one of those very rare, you know, when babies have a four hour epic nap and you go in and check that they're breathing and then you commando crawl out and <laughs> and in the space of four hours I did two things I was so outraged by this experience that ironically I started a social media campaign that babies need laps not apps mm. and it went viral um, I shared, shared my experience and, and and the story and a lot of people were really resonating with that and at the same time it, was, it really made me realize what conflicting advice parents were getting on one hand we're told you know screens are bad avoid them it will ruin their eyesight it's bad for their brains and yet on the other hand we had health professionals I had the experience of a health professional advising that I do introduce screens and I knew from speaking to other parents what conflicting and confusing advice they were getting about kids and screens so the second thing I did in this four-hour nap was start writing a book now I didn't write the whole book in the four-hour nap period and you do people on productivity so I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> Definitely not how that happened. But I started the book because I really realised that I was in a really privileged position in terms of having access to research-based information, but I knew that this research wasn't penetrating through to the people that matter the most. I knew having been a teacher, teachers don't get time to read academic journals and go to conferences where all this research was being shared. And I also knew that parents weren't getting consistent and, and, and reliable research. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do was act as sort of a conduit. Um, I'm a self-confessed nerd, so I love the research research and science, but I'm a firm believer that it's only relevant if people get access to it, if we translate it into relevant strategies, if we make it digestible. So I started um, speaking to parents, to teachers, and also to health professionals about the impact of technology on kids' well-being, um, on their health, and also on, on their learning. And in the last probably 18 months to two years, it was parents at the end of the seminar coming up and saying to me, do you speak to adults about this? Because what you're saying, a lot of what you're sharing is equally as applicable to me. Um, I work in, in offices where I see the costs of digital distraction, um, where I see employees that are tethered to their devices, where I'm seeing people that are chronically sleep deprived because of poor, what I'm calling digital hygiene. Mm. Um, so in the last sort of yeah, 18 months to two years, the focus has really started to shift, not so much. And I'm still working with a lot of parents and talking about kids' screen time. But I think as adults, we're recognising none of us are immune to the digital pool. Often we have really unhealthy, unsustainable digital habits. So that is how I've got to the sort of point where I am now. So I'm still talking about digital well-being and what I call performance um, in terms of kids, that it's how it's impacting their health and their learning. And with adults, it's how it's impacting their um, well-being, but also their productivity. Mm, yeah, in incredible. And I think all of us can 
um, stand in the shoes of all of those adults and realize that it's easy to pull something off your child, but it's not so easy to take it off yourself. Um, so that's right. Yeah. Over the time that you've been working in this area, because I know it has been quite a few years now, how have you seen our relationship with technology change in that time? Look, I'm very cautious. There's a lot of um, speculation that and the word addiction is thrown around a lot, both with kids and adults, and I'm very um, reluctant to use that word. The research tells us that uh, that if we were to clinically diagnose a, an internet or a technology addiction, it would only apply to somewhere between 3 and 10% of the population. So I think we have to be very careful with the language we're using. What I say instead, what I'm seeing and what I hear people telling me anecdotally is that in many instances, we've just developed a digital dependence. We've developed some unhealthy technology habits. And if we look at it from that perspective, rather than just labeling it as an addiction, we can start to make proactive, simple steps to change those habits both for our kids and for ourselves mm -hmm. but I have seen so many adults that say you know I'm not so much worried anymore about my kids screen time I've got some good boundaries around that what I'm worried about is my own personal use you know I'm, I'm at soccer practice and I'm scrolling my phone I'm sitting at swimming practice and I'm quickly replying to an email and my concern is the impact that's having on adults first of all their well-being their health um, but also on the relationships they have. You know, are we missing the micro moments? You know, the wink at swimming lessons when your child finally masters the tumble turn that they've spent six months trying to learn. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, uh, and, and in terms of personal relationships, you know, we've had studies done that even show the presence of your mobile phone, even if it's face down on a table whilst you're eating, diminishes the quality and quantity of conversation. Mm. Um, and I mean, when we start to look at these technologies were intentionally designed to prey on our psychological vulnerabilities. So it's no accident that we're seeing this, but I definitely think we're seeing a greater awareness. Adults are saying, you know, I'm, I'm actually um, quite aware of how digitally dependent I am. What can I do to change that? Mm. Yeah, I love that part about missing magic moments because I think that that is like really hits the core of it. And I think I remember in one of your talks talking about the number of playground accidents that has kind of increased and spiked. Is it was it? That's right. So in the um, in my part of the research I did for my book, I interviewed paediatricians and emergency department doctors, and they have reported a surge in um, children presenting to emergency departments with serious playground injuries. And based on their anecdotal observations, what they noticed was that in many instances, one of the they, they have two theories. One of the theories was that kids aren't playing outside as much as they used to, so they don't have the physical skill set to master playgrounds. So hence why there's been a, an increase in accidents but their second observation was that if parents were honest and vulnerable enough to admit in many instances digital distraction was a contributing factor mm. um, so I mean there's really serious consequences in terms of you know our, our digital distraction having physical consequences mm. but there's so many other consequences both on our relationships but also on our personal well-being and physical health as well yeah, so maybe we could just step into that question. I know um, is what is the cost of this digital distraction that 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 you see um, for people? I know it's. I mean, there's obviously a lot of benefits in technology, and we're all aware of the benefits of it. But there is a cost, and and what would what would you say is the cost? 
look, there's a huge range of costs. I look at it in terms of, um, you know, let's start at, at a really basic level. It has huge costs on our mental wellbeing. Um, we are seeing emerging studies and the studies at this stage only point to a correlation. So we don't have studies that prove that technology is causing the increase in mental health issues. Um, but we are seeing, you know, increases in depression and anxiety um, and that looking at screens close distance. And we still know there's a genetic component to that risk factor. But what we now know is it's what we're missing out on and kids in particular are vulnerable to this. And that's natural sunlight. Kids um, and adults need, kids need about 10 to 15 hours of natural sunlight each week for their myopic nerve to develop. So we're seeing consequences. So there's sort of the mental, the physical, and then it comes down to, in terms of our performance, you know, our digital distractions are really compromising our productivity. You know, the pings of emails, social media alerts and notifications, having your phone ring. Um, Cal Newport is a professor who talks a lot about deep work. And we don't get opportunities now unless we are really conscious of creating really healthy digital boundaries to engage in that deep work that we know that we need to do to be productive. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a smattering, I guess, of some of the consequences. Mm. It's like a, it's like a can of worms once you open it, isn't it? Totally. So many of us feel um, this, like we are tethered to our devices. So why is it so hard for us to switch off and stop even when we know it has this impact on our sleep, on our mental health, yeah. um, or on just getting into a flow state and being productive? Why can we not stop? Yes, so I'm going to explain why we find it hard to switch off and I'm going to say these are the same reasons why kids throw techno tantrums, why they emotionally combust when we try to digitally disconnect them. Um, they obviously, if they're younger kids, it's a self-regulation issue as well, but it's very normal. I have many parents tell me that their teenager, you know, has fits of rage, is punching holes in the wall when the gaming console is put away. Um, it's, it's the same sort of thing. So what we know is that technology was designed to prey on our psychological vulnerability. At the first level, we have three core psychological drivers as humans and technology meets all of them. Our first human need is the need for connection. We are hardwired for relational connection. This is why games like Fortnite have been popular for kids. This is why social media is so popular. This is why adults love email. We are hardwired for that, that relational connection. The second psychological driver we have is the need to be competent. And online, we can depict that sense of competency. You know, I, I might only ever post the A-roll footage on my Instagram feed. Um, I might be able to do a Google search for information I'm trying to seek. So I get to feel competent in the online world. And the third psychological driver we have as humans is the need for control. And in the online world, we do have some sort of locus of control over what we do and how we spend our time. So that's how technology caters for our psychological drivers. But technology um, also preys on our, some of our neurobiological weaknesses. So we know, for example, um, we get hits of dopamine. And a tool like Instagram, um, it is alleged that it deliberately withholds some of our likes and comments because it knows that we'll go back in, according to our socio-demographic profile, and check how many likes and comments we got after a certain period of time. So they will deliberately withhold some of your likes and comments so that the next time you go in, you get <laughs> flooded with so many more likes and comments and you'll get a surge of dopamine. And dopamine is that feel-good neurotransmitter. 
For our kids, it's watching, you know, mindless YouTube clips of other people playing video games, for example, that floods their brains with dopamine. Um, we know that our technology has also been designed to offer what we call intermittent variable rewards exactly the same as poker machines so we call it it's the near miss phenomenon every now and then you'll get a win so you might get a whole lot of likes but it, you know every now and then you won't um in Fortnite and, and video multiplayer video games you you feel you don't ever feel like you lost instead you feel like you nearly won mm. um so these design mechanics they're, they're just a sample um other things you know the red icon of your unread message um, the other reason, and this is the one, I, if I'm really honest, I struggle with the most, um, and that is that when we use technology, we enter something called the state of insufficiency. We never, ever feel done. We never, ever feel complete. There's always another inbox, you know, email in our inbox. There's always another refresh of social media. Um, and so we never get that sense of being done. And this is why, you know, YouTube is so problematic for kids because the videos roll in. Um, multi, you know, multiplayer channels on Netflix, etc. There's never that sense of being done. So there's a whole lot of mechanics that have been in place that make it so hard for us to digitally disconnect. Mm, oh, it's incredible. And I guess none of us that, you know, when we're on our gadgets, we're not aware that they've actually been designed in this way to keep us there and to keep the children there. And um, I mean, do you think we have, we are starting to become wired differently from our interaction with technology and, and the way that we are, you know, taking on information now and this distraction and, and you know, yeah distraction yeah I, look i do the research in this area is still in its infancy what we know about the human brain is it takes a very long time for it to evolve and change so a lot of people say oh well the, the brain will just adapt and it will change you know we'll be good at multitasking that's not the case the research consistently tells us our brain is incapable of multitasking despite what your teenager will try and tell you um, but we know that it is, you know, it, it is definitely affecting us. But what we have is low tech brains. We've got analog brains trying to cope in this demanding digital world. And our brains certainly haven't evolved at the pace at which the technology is to mean that we can cope with this. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we are seeing impacts, but I don't think our brain is changing to be able to cope with them in the way. And that's why I think we're just at the very, very beginning of seeing some of the human frustrations um, because of these habits and the way we're using technology. Mm, interesting. And I know that, you know, when you talk about technology, whether it's with kids or adults, it's not about just let's just cut off and stop yeah. using technology because it, it's not that realistic. I mean, of course, for young children, that is a reality and possibility. But for us, it, it's something that we have in our lives and we need to work around. So for you, what does it mean to have digital well-being or digital health? Mm. So I talk about digital amputation isn't the solution. It really isn't. It will make you a very unpopular parent. And it's actually not what our kids need and what, not what we need. You know, it's not a long-term solution. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm a little tentative about people that do digital detoxes or go on retreats where they don't use technology. Because what we find, it can be helpful at sort of 
terminating unhealthy habits, but what it can actually do is create a binge and purge kind of cycle. So what we need to do is develop healthy, sustainable tech habits that will serve us long-term, both for our kids and us. So one of the key messages I have when I speak to parents and also to adults too is we have to establish boundaries around technology. My key message with every single audience, tonight I'm speaking to parents of preschoolers, last night I spoke to educators of primary schoolers and earlier in the week I spoke to a corporate audience and my key message is this, we need to be masters of the media and not a slave to the screen. And for adults, that means we have to help our kids develop these, these boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it means having times, nominated times when we use technology. For me, I have to um, have set times when I'm using social media because it will be the rabbit hole that I get sucked into. Mm-hmm. I can justify it saying it's for work reasons when the reality is it often isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about having places and times in the day where you won't use technology. So I'm really reluctant to use devices when I go and watch my kids do their swimming lessons. Mm. Um, It's about, you know, that old saying, out of sight, out of mind. When you come home at the end of the day, putting your devices somewhere where you don't necessarily need to see them because often it's the seeing them that is the trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, another really practical strategy that's helped me is turning your device to grayscale. So you can go into your device's settings and instead of it being a coloured screen, you can turn it to a grey screen and it let me tell you, Instagram is nowhere near as exciting mm-hmm. when you're looking at it grayscale. Um, We know um, some other practical strategies, a really simple one, turning off alerts and notifications. Mm. Um, These hijack our attention all of the time. Um, For me, trying to get, you know, maximise the amount of time I can get done while the baby is napping at the moment means also disabling my um, turning on do not disturb. So I have set it up so that my husband, um, my my mother, my mother-in-law and the kids' school can call me if they need to, but everybody else is blocked so that I can actually carve out uninterrupted time. Um, We know, you know, the constant ping of emails and alerts and notifications is really compromising our output. Mm. Um, So there's some of the strategies that we've put in place. Our kids have got firm rules around when they use the technology they certainly use it but they know when they can use it Um, also boundaries around the times of day where we use it and also what we do on it Mm. Um, I guess us to try and have some sense of control over what we're doing rather than the other way around which I think many adults would admit would admit where the technology controls us. Mm, yeah, I, I love that. And like you say, it's boundaries on our children and boundaries on ourselves. And mm. I mean, do you, some of us know, oh, we will try not to be on social media or we'll try not to use our phone at this time. Do you recommend any kind of apps or anything else that people can use where it actually just stops you from being on there? <laughs> yes. If you've got poor self-control or if you're just at the beginning stages of trying to implement healthier habits, ironically, using technology will help you develop some healthier boundaries. And this is where technology can be great. Um, up until you know a couple of months ago, there were specific apps you could download. But now, um, because Apple and Google are very concerned about this rising surge in concern about digital well-being um, in one of their recent updates um, apple released screen time where you can actually set up on all your apple devices um, tracking tools to actually monitor and moderate how much time you're spending online that can be a huge eye-opener for people on android devices um, 
they have developed a tool called Google, um, uh, Google's Wellbeing platform. And you can do similar sorts of things. So you can track how much time you're using. You can set limits. So you can say, look, my bedtime needs to be this particular time. Don't let me, you know, get on my emails until 8 a.m. in the morning. Whatever boundaries you need to, to set up. On a desktop or a laptop computer, you can look at something um, like Freedom um, or Rescue Time are also web-based platforms where you can actually track. And I think once we start to realise just how much time um, we are devoting to our distractions, we really can be that awful slap in the face that we need to try and curb those. So they will also prohibit you. Um, Families often recommend a, an internet filtering tool that will help your kids. So when they need to be on their devices doing homework, they are actually doing homework and not on Snapchat or, or gaming, etc. Oh, that's so helpful. And thank you for sharing those great tips. Okay. I think all of us will probably go away and, and check those out and start implementing them. So, great. I mean, this kind of leads on to the discussion around productivity. And I know that's something you now speak to corporates about is, How's, how is technology impacting our productivity? Yeah, so I've touched on it a little bit. The, the, you know, one of the biggest threats to our productivity is the ping of email. It's mm. also a social media check-in. It really has become the cigarette break of the modern world. Mm. Um, you know, just And one of the reasons we know that we start to pick up our phone and start scrolling through social media is that when we reach, when we say we're doing some focused work, we're perhaps doing some deep work and we get to something that's a challenging task or we need to reconcile an issue or something's basically just difficult, what we know happens is that we gravitate to our screen because it's really easy to sit there and scroll through social media or quickly read the news and see what's happening in the world. So our brain is looking for that break. Mm -hmm. So a simple strategy here is set yourself up to work in short breaks, in short bursts, I should say. So, um, you know, there's a technique called the Pomodoro technique, which is based on this premise that you work for 25 minutes solidly and then you have a five-minute break. That five-minute break could be for your social media or your news check-in but it is you controlling it not just sort of reaching for it when you get to a difficult stage mm. um, it, it, it's um, a huge range of, of issues email is one social media in the workplace a really big threat to productivity is meetings the, the frequent unnecessary meetings that people have and now because we've got online calendar tools where people can just schedule meetings or demand that you have a meeting at a particular time that's become a, a difficult thing um, as well we know many modern workplaces now have open plan offices and whilst they were designed initially to promote collaboration and interaction the reality is their studies saying that that's not the case that they're actually diminishing the types of communication um, that is occurring because people don't want to nervously disrupt others by going up and having a conversation in a large there are simple things that we can do. We really have to preserve that deep work time. We also need to work in with our, um, our natural rhythms in the day. Um, and so we need to know whether we're an owl or a lark. And if you're an owl, then you should be scheduling or trying, if you can, to do your deep work later on in the day. And if you're a lark, your, your deep work should be done in, in early on in the day. And they talk, talk about this in terms of your chronotype. Um, and your chronotype, well, yeah, there are some assessments you can do to find out. I think most of us know intuitively if we're an owl or a lark. Um, but then maximising those times of the day. So we're doing the deep work when our, our performance is at its highest and we're doing our shallow tasks later on. Mm. Um, and and that, the biggest thing that I've, I have found, and it's such a simple thing to change, is 
leaving email until parts of the day where it's my shallow work time. Um, That's such great advice, I think. And I know that there's some work I've been doing in this whole epigenetic assessment area and it actually gives you that chronobiology information and tells you when is time based on your biology. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, it's great. And I know for me that mine is at 1 p.m. So that's my hour, my power hour, they call it. So that's my time to create something. Um, And I've used an app, which you might be familiar with, called Forest. Yes. Yeah, so it's kind of that Pomodoro set the time. And if you manage to... not touch the screen it says you've planted a tree and it's it's a lovely app and and it's just the psychology of knowing not to touch your screen just helps helps me yeah. to think oh don't don't touch it especially when you say when when things get hard it's almost like when you take a snack break it's like oh it's too hard it's, it's the same kind of snacking on your on your technology so yeah I can really appreciate that I so, like that. And Forest is, is great. And that's the whole gamifying approach. Again, great use of the technology. And this is, mm-hmm. I love that example because it shows us that technology isn't all doom and gloom and it's not evil. It is, in its essence, a tool. And that's how we have to use it. We have to be in control of that tool, though. And mm-hmm. that's where I think we're slipping up, where the tool is controlling us. Mm, exactly. So I know that you've spoken about quite a few points on how, um, you know, to manage ourselves uh, in the digital world. Is there anything else that you'd like to say around um, recommendations for managing children in the digital age? I know that you've written a whole book on this and you have covered some of it around boundaries and things, but is there anything in that area of how we manage our children that you'd like to share? Yes. So as pilots of the digital plane, I say to parents, you have to meet the three Bs. For kids to thrive in this digital world, you only need to get three Bs right. And the first one is boundaries. Boundaries, not only, I think many parents just obsess over how much time kids are spending on screens. I actually say to parents, that's the least important question. It's important if it's encroaching on their basic needs, but how much time isn't the most important thing. What we need to look at is what they're doing on the screen. Mm -hmm. Is it age appropriate? Um, Is it antisocial? Is it educational? Is it leisure? Is it learning? And we need to look at what they're doing and we need to have boundaries around when. So obviously before sleep, the other time I say to parents is be really careful about what they do on a screen before school because it can hyper arouse their brain and make it near impossible for them to go to school and, and listen to their teacher. Um, boundaries around where they use the devices. So really carving out specific no-go tech zones. So bedrooms, um, bathrooms, uh, meal areas, cars and play spaces really should be those no-go tech zones. Um, having boundaries around how they use the devices so that we're not damaging their their eyesight and their hearing and their musculoskeletal health. Mm-hmm. Um, so boundaries is the first B. The second B is making sure that technology doesn't interfere with their basic needs. And their basic needs are, are they getting enough sleep? Are they physically active? Are they playing? Are they having real face-to-face social interaction? Um, Are they eating good quality foods Um, and are they hearing and using lots of language? They're really the basic needs that kids have. And the third B that I know many parents are surprised to hear about, and I believe this is one that all of us need, and that is boredom. Um, We have become so accustomed to always being switched on And our brain, remember, we've got an ancient brain in a high-tech world. Our brain isn't designed to cope with that constant stimulation of the screen world. 
So kids need opportunities to be bored and to be daydreaming. So if your child hasn't said to you, you know, I'm bored, um, I sometimes say to parents, maybe you're not doing a good enough job. Like it is okay. In fact, I'm going to suggest that it is essential that kids are bored. Mm -hmm. This is where we come up with creative ideas and solutions to problems. Mm -hmm. um, so boredom is a really essential component too. Mm -hmm. so yeah. Boundaries, basic needs and boredom, if we get those things right, then we don't have to have all this moral panic about kids and screen time and it's just absolutely and I think as adults the same three B's probably apply totally. well. <laughs> yeah and they do I'm, I'm working with some really big corporations some law firms some tech companies and I'm telling them or suggesting to them that those three things are really critical the boredom piece is probably the most essential you know you come up with creative ideas and, and product ideation when you're often not at work you know when you're on holidays or when you've woken up at three o'clock in the morning with a genie idea we enter neuroscientists actually call it mind wandering mode um, mm. or the default mode of thinking and it can only ever happen when the, the frontal lobe of our brain turns off mm. so yeah good yes and i think for us we can all recognize these moments that we used to wait at a bus stop or we used yes. to all these idle times where we used to daydream that just now we pick up the device and go into another world so i think that's that's very relevant um, with all of that and I guess going back to the one the part about children in this you know if we don't have any boundaries on what our kids are watching and where they're watching it then we start to go down a bit of a rabbit hole into um, seeing things and experiencing things that we probably wouldn't want our children to see um, and I want to talk about this topic of um, accessibility to pornography which I know is something that you do talk about and I'd like you to share maybe about how this is impacting our children from a young age and yeah. how it's impacting us as adults and how it's impacting our relationship because I think this is a, a really big topic that isn't maybe spoken about enough. Yes. So unfortunately, this is a topic um, that I am talking about and I'm talking about it from primary school right through to secondary school. Um, and I believe it's a health epidemic um, in Australia and throughout the world, in fact. Um, in Australia alone, I know I've been speaking to health professionals, so um, emergency department doctors, GPs, um, social workers, and they are telling me that they're treating increasing numbers of young boys um, presenting with erectile dysfunction because they have been desensitised because of the amount and type of pornography that they are watching. Um, I know this is really distressing to hear, but young girls, sometimes even in upper primary school, who are presenting with um, really serious anal and genital injuries because they're engaging in sexual practices that they're imitating off pornography. The problem with pornography now, kids are telling us that it's actually harder to avoid pornography than it is to find it. Our kids literally have porn in their pockets. Mm. Um, and, and the pornography that they are viewing, many people say, well, no, we had Playboy around when we grew up and there were nude calendars. Totally different pornography that they are watching. It, it is dynamic, so very different regions of the brain are activated as opposed to looking at a static image. We are now even, this is going to become so much more of a problem, um, there are the beginning stages of virtual reality pornography being created. So you can wear virtual reality goggles and pornographic clips are being made in a way that will make you feel like you are literally part of a, a pornography scene. Um, and the problem is that our kids are finding it, sometimes intentionally, sometimes 
accidentally. And the problem then becomes just like I often say to parents, if your child found a really interesting bug in the garden, they do two things. Number one, they go and find more, look for more and more of those bugs. And the second thing they go and do is go and tell all of their friends about what new thing they've discovered. And the, the reality is parents don't want to talk to their kids about the birds and the bees, let alone talk about pornography. Schools feel that it's not their place to be discussing this. So we have a really a huge problem because we've got a generation of kids who are being exposed to it frequently, if not by them, you know, at home amongst their peer group, on the bus, on the way to school, um, and no one is talking to them about what they're watching isn't a depiction of a loving, consensual relationship. And because their brains have something in them called mirror neurons, it means they're hardwired to imitate. So they're watching this. They think this is what is expected. And so we've got boys engaging in very violent sexual acts, engaging in a whole lot of behaviours that we wouldn't consider part of a normal teen relationship. And we're seeing this happen with, with adults. Um, the same thing is playing, um, playing out. So we need to be having these awkward conversations. In March this year, I ran a pornography webinar and we've had nearly six thousand parents, um, educators and health professionals watch this particular webinar. Um, we need to share a link with you. Could you just repeat that little bit that you just said then? Because I think we just cut out, so we just cut out. Yeah, just about um, parents need to, I believe, be having these tricky conversations with their kids. And unfortunately, it is a topic that we have to tackle when kids are in primary school. Mm. I believe somewhere between five to eight years, we don't need to use the word pornography, but we start having incidental and ongoing conversations about sometimes on the internet or on your tablet or on your iPad or on your phone or somebody else's device, you might see what we call private photos or private videos. We don't use the words good and bad. We don't show them examples. Um, we don't even use the word pornography. At a young age, it's just having those conversations. And this is why I say to parents, we can't use screen time as a punishment tool. If our kids have a perceived threat that you're going to confiscate the device, they'll never come to us when they see this content. So we just need to be saying to kids, you know, if you see something you think is a private photo or a private video, you just need to go and tell a trusted adult and you're not going to get in trouble. When I work with kids, and this is the tricky part because we don't want to give them examples and we don't want to scare them and we don't want to... Um, for want of a better word, arouse their curiosity. We just simply talk to them, you know, how do I know if something's private? My body will send my brain a message that something makes me feel unusual. I get funny mm -hmm. feeling in my tummy because the problem with pornography is that it causes a, a, an arousal effect. They have a physiological change in their body that they've never experienced. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's so many, this is a huge topic, but they're just some of the problems that mm -hmm. are affecting kids but also um, affecting many adults um, as well. Yeah. And I guess it's also about having conversations with young teenagers about what is an acceptable way to, you know, connect with, with a guy or, or a woman and sex. Because, and that's a really uncomfortable conversation to have. Um, totally. But it's like it's so necessary because there's kind of a distorted idea of what a normal sexual relationship is absolutely and so those conversations um you know i have many even though i run most of my seminars and they're always geared towards parents in many instances it's mothers that come along and they often say to me i feel really awkward to try and tackle this conversation 
with their daughter, they seem to be okay. But if they have a son, they say, oh, you know, my son would cringe. He certainly doesn't want to talk about erections and sex with me, let alone trying to debunk pornography. So this is where we either need a father or a father figure or another male role model. Um, and something that I'm trying to suggest here in Australia is that if kids are part of sporting teams um, or if they're part of outside groups, sometimes a strong male figure that's starting to tackle these topics can be a better approach rather than, because they're going to shut down if it's you and it's awkward. Um, but there are other simple strategies about how we can get around that, you know, going to a, a neutral place to have a conversation. Um, don't sit down, particularly with boys, and have a face-to-face -face conversation. Males do not like face-to-face -face conversations. Males like side-by-side -side conversation. So going for a walk, um, walking along the beach, going to the park and just talking about it talking about it in a third person way you know a friend of mine the other day was telling me she went to type in this word and up popped this video you know have you seen stuff like this what are, what are your thoughts on it rather than sitting them down and saying have you watched pornography or you know what porn are you watching because mm. that's not going to go down very well mm. um so yeah ongoing incidental conversations but in ways that make them realize what they're watching isn't necessarily a depiction of that loving consensual relationship that's mm, so helpful thank you and I'm, I'm really keen to share that webinar that you do because like you say it's an enormous conversation and it is impacting adults and adult relationships as well from what I understand totally. yeah so how do like when we speak about this my heart as a parent just feels so heavy having two girls yeah. going into the world with knowing that this is all out there um, and how do we not feel overwhelmed by the impact of technology, mental health, you know, pornography, the loss of innocence and, um, you know, even physical health, the impact it's having? How do we not feel overwhelmed by it? Because it does feel overwhelming. Yeah, I think in taking that empowering stance that is we are the pilot of the plane, we get to enforce the boundaries. So we can, and I think setting the boundaries with your child, obviously you can't do that with a two-year-old or a three-year-old, um, but once they get a little bit older, getting their buy-in and explaining the reasoning why. You know, I'm, I'm asking you not to have your phone in your bedroom and giving them reasons. You know, we know most cyberbullying takes place at night. We know it's going to impact your sleep. Um, you know, we know that you're one of the reasons I say to kids and explain to them why we know most cyberbullying occurs at night is because the logical prefrontal cortex of the brain shuts off mm. and their amygdala, which is their emotional center, fires up at night. So, and I'll say this to employees as well, this is why you shouldn't be sending emails late at night. Your emotional brain's on and your logical brain is off. Um, so explaining the rationale behind some of your um, decisions, um, really trying to get their um, perspective. I think we often think we just have to enforce rules. We get much better buy-in if our kids are part of the process as well. Mm. Um, for younger kids, I think we can definitely use internet filtering tools. Mm. I personally use and recommend the Family Zone. There are lots of other tools out there. So long as you have got tools in place, while your child doesn't have self-control, um, it's really important that we impose those boundaries on them. I don't think they work particularly well um, with older adolescents. Um, I think by that stage, we want them trying to self-regulate. So this is where you have to have these ongoing incidental conversations. You know, this is not the technology talk um, that we do as a one-off and I tick the box and say, okay, I've talked about, you know, pornography, cyberbullying, online predators, we're done. This is uh, a, because the technology that they're using, the platforms and the risks are evolving mm. exponentially. Mm. So this is why 
if we're the pilot, they'll come to us when there are problems. Mm. If we don't ever have that threat of punishment of removing screens or technology. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And I think for most of us, we like to think that all of these things are going to happen later to our children. So I think obviously part of it is doing it much earlier than we think is necessary. It really is. Mm. I have a lot of, when parents come to, so I talk from preschool right up to secondary school and the parents that do actually come to the seminars in secondary school, there's never anywhere as many, many of them say, I wished I'd known this years ago Mm. because so much of this, and this is the the, the thing as a a researcher in this field that really breaks my heart. So many of the problems that we see are preventable. Mm. So many of these issues could have been prevented if we had parents had had access to this information and it's no fault of parents you know i think most parents are trying to do the best that they can but they feel ill-equipped you know we have no frame of reference in terms of what it's like to parent in this digital world Mm. so parents are looking for guidance and advice and are literally trying to keep up Mm. but many of them have sort of let their kids be the pilot of the digital plane and their teenagers and they're way back in economy class and their child's in the pilot seat when they hit turbulence, when they're cyberbullied, when they see pornography, scary, violent content, they're ill-equipped to cope with it and they crash the plane. Whereas mm. if the parents are in the pilot seat, the kids will still hit turbulence. Uh, um, you know, there's no 100% way we can reduce cyberbullying or reduce online predators. But if we're in the pilot seat, we can help them to course correct mm. and they won't necessarily crash the plane. Yeah, what a so, fantastic analogy. And I know yeah. that... All the way it's through. not the easy one though like that's <laughs> i know parents I, I wish there was a silver bullet i'm here telling you it's damn hard work like, exactly and we're everyone's learning the impact as we go aren't we mm-hmm. um but it's an experiment yes i love that all throughout your work and um you know through your website you're always talking about this word empowering empowering parents um you know and i think that is the idea of being the pilot and being okay with saying no you're not watching at these times or you're not we're putting software on and you can't watch those sites and um taking back the control of it which is um put the kids in economy i like that yeah <laughs> you can go first class. but the other thing too the big thing i say it's particularly if you've got kids still in primary school is please do not prematurely introduce social media to kids mm. we know so many kids have set this up and many parents say well you know i don't want them to be socially ostracized um but that is a really big risk you are you know opening up a huge range of issues if you introduce it before your child's socially and emotionally able to cope with it i think we've seen many adults that don't know how to use social media you know, respectfully and responsibly, let alone kids. Teach them how to use it. So many of this just hand devices to kids and expect that they'll know how to use it. They don't have a frontal cortex of their brain. They are impulsive. Mm. They make silly mistakes. But now their silly mistakes have what I call digital DNA attached to them. Mm. Their mistakes are curated on Instagram and on Snapchat. Um, So, yeah, delaying the introduction and then when you do give it to them, teach them how to use it. You know, we wouldn't throw kids in a swimming pool and expect that they know how to swim the same thing with technology mm. i've always felt like um we need a license to drive yes devices it's like trying yeah. that here in australia so it will be interesting to see how that goes mm, interesting yeah because there are so many kind of impacts of not being trained in it properly like you say so christy what 
to you know this podcast a lot is about living your purpose and living on purpose and a lot about what we've been talking about is like how do we um, interact with technology in a purposeful way so that it's not distracting us from doing what we want to do on our path and it's actually enabling us to move forward in the direction we want to go in life so what do you believe is your purpose my purpose, I really believe, is to help guide others without the guilt, the guesswork and the grief um, about how to tame their technology habits so that they're not a slave to a screen. I think if we can all do that, then we can, you know, leverage the benefits. Technology offers, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation without technology and your listeners wouldn't be listening to the, the podcast without the technology the technology is a brilliant tool, um, mm. but it should not be your master. Mm. Um, it really should be your servant. And so many of us have it around the other way where we're servants to our devices. So I think mm. it's just being in control. Um, and we are, you know, in our defence, we're the first generation of people who are really living and working and raising kids in this tsunami of screens. So mm. we're trying to figure it out as we go mm. uh, and often without good clear-cut advice as well. Mm. Fantastic. That's so helpful. Is there any other words as we start to close that any other words of wisdom or anything else you'd like to share with adults or parents or anything else that you haven't covered? I don't think so. Just uh, technology isn't toxic. I would hate for people to think that I've, you know, demonized technology and said, we're all, you know, doomed. We're not. It is a powerful tool if we are choosing um, to use it and control it the way we want. I use often the analogy of a knife. A knife can be a great tool. It can, you know, let you put butter on your bread and it can cut your, you know, your delicious salad up, but it can equally be used as a, a tool to inflict, you know, harm on other people. Mm. It is just a tool. Its benefits and its pitfalls depend on us and how we use it. So. Mm. Oh, I love that. There's just so many great little pearls of wisdom all through this discussion. So thank you so much. And oh, I would love to know um, how we can support you in the work that you're doing. How, how can people follow you? What can we do? I know I would highly recommend um, your book to any, any parent who wants to go into more detail of how to to you know, manage your child in the digital age, um, and a lot of it is, like you say, applicable to adults as well. Um, is there any other ways that we can support you in the work that you're doing? Yes. So, depending on where you are in the world, I speak throughout Australia and Asia, and I'm hopefully coming to New Zealand soon. Um, but delivering in-person um, seminars, I'm also very aware that. Sometimes it's really tricky to come to one of these evening seminars. So for so long I resisted this, but I have ironically developed an online um, platform. It's called the Switched On Parents Portal. And basically I have had all of my parent, my signature parent talks professionally recorded. I've put in um, some mini masterclasses on topics. I call them digital dilemmas that parents are facing so that parents basically have an online library um, where they can get answers to all of the questions that they're facing as they try to raise kids in this digital world. So there's videos, there's cheat sheets, there's tips sheets you can download um, there's master classes that you can watch and you can also submit your own questions so every month I record a video and I answer whatever digital dilemmas parents are facing mm -hmm. um, so they can get the sort of advice and guidance that I think we're looking for without you know spending hours going down 
the Google rabbit hole, <laughs> ending up coming out more confused and concerned. Um, so that's called the Switched On um, Parents Portal. So I can provide um, a link um, to that. And then if that's not um, something that will help my blog, um, I try and release something every month, both for adults and for um, parents as well. So there's information on that digital platform too. Amazing. Well, wow, such fantastic resources. And I love your blog. I always get something out of that. And how great for parents to tap in to, you know, a, a more detailed resource centre. So thanks for sharing that. I'll share that in the show notes as well. Lovely. But thank thank you. you so much for your incredible sure. knowledge in digital health and wellbeing. I think it's, it's in a... Um, you know, so necessary the job that you're doing in the world and sharing this knowledge um, to, you know, us as individuals and as parents. So thank you, Christy. My pleasure. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you.